Good morning. One more time. Good morning. I greet you in the name of the one who is the center of my joy, the head of my life, and the anchor of my soul. It is good to be back at Harvard. Of the reading this morning, I'd like to emphasize a couple verses. Um, John, the fourth chapter, verses 16 through 19. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Please meditate with me for a few moments on the topic, I see you. I see you. When I was at Harvard, and at that time, to reveal my generation, I would have said Harvard and Radcliffe Colleges, Harvard was a school for the go-getters, the self-motivated, people with drive and ambitious and a hearty type A overachiever personality. I mean, that's kind of how we got here, right? And like most colleges, there's a lot of information in those first weeks. Student organizations trying to get your attention and membership, pamphlets, messages, notes, but all the amazing opportunities the school has to offer. And then after the first couple of weeks, things get quiet. My RA told us to knock if we needed something. We were expected to get into the groove of classes, homework, roommates, and friendships. And this was exactly what I wanted. I went to a small high school, and I wanted some anonymity. I wanted to choose my own path and forge it without everyone around me noticing me, asking me for things, speculating, gossiping, or doing those things that happen when you're from a small community, a small school, or a small town. Now, it might be different now, I'm sure, but that's the Harvard that I knew. And I wanted a place that was diverse enough, large enough, global enough, and interesting enough for that freedom to find my own people and my own path. But then the winter set in. The snow and the wind and the cold came for days and weeks and months on end. And we bundled up and fought for a space in the shuttle between classes and our house. Or we gave up and wrapped our scarves around our heads a bit tighter put our heads down, and made our ways to where we needed to be, one step at a time. And before I knew it, I felt invisible. In my book, Bipolar Faith, I write about disappearing at Harvard. I wrote this, I began to wonder if there was another way out. I had just one question. If I disappeared, if I just fell off the face of the earth, how long would it take for anyone to notice? If I disappeared on a Thursday, the professors wouldn't have a chance to notice my absence until the next Tuesday, and then it would take two weeks before they either realized I was gone or wrote it off as more than sickness. If I disappeared on a Tuesday, my housemates might assume I was hanging out and eating with a friend, 
because I would have fulfilled my duties on Monday. If I disappeared on a Sunday, no one would notice I hadn't gone to any parties until the next week. My friends didn't call that often. They weren't paying much attention to me. What if I just disappeared? I often wonder if the woman at the well felt like this. Did she think, what would happen if I just disappeared? She's at the well late in the day, past the heat of the day, by herself. She's not with the other women who go early in the morning to get the day's water. They know to go before the sun rays beat down on the heads and shoulders, slowing down that trek from well to home. Not this woman. She's by herself, in the, past the heat, trying to do what needs to be done. She's a woman who, by my best bet, is lonely. She's had five husbands. In ancient Palestine, a woman did not have the power or agency to end a marriage. So if she's had five husbands, that means she's been left five times. We don't know why she's been left in love and relationship, but we know that she was. Maybe she couldn't have children. Maybe she couldn't have boy children, the more prized heir of society. Maybe she was just too much. Too sad, too angry, too much of a downer, too barren, too fat, too small, too black, too brown, too poor, too used, too fast, too rejected, just too much. I imagine she ran these possibilities over and over in her mind as often we do when we've been the dumpy in a relationship. We wonder what's wrong with us, what we could have done better, what we missed, and so she finds love and companionship where she can. But she's alone. Alone with her ideas, fears, insecurity, self-doubt, and alone at the well, invisible. And then she's a Samaritan woman. Jewish men didn't speak to women in public, and Jewish people didn't interact with Samaritans. Most Jews would rather extend a journey by three days just to walk around Samaria rather than walk through it. It just wasn't done. Those Samaritans had a different history, a different ethnicity, a different belief than the Jews. They were not just different, they were pariahs. They were not our kind of people. They were to be avoided. They were to be ignored. They were invisible. Some of us know something about being invisible. Some of us have been or are in places where we feel invisible. Maybe like me, you were hurting, suffering, in angst, and felt like no one could see your pain. Because mental health challenges and depressions can't often be seen. It's not a broken arm, you're not on a crutch, the pain is not visible. Some of you may feel invisible in a binary system of gender or race and sexuality that doesn't do a good job of acknowledging ambiguities or plurality. Some of you may feel invisible because your ideas or beliefs are different from those around you and you don't know if you'll be judged or embraced if you shared. And some of you may come from communities where your pains and joy and humanity is not validated. There's a reason why Ralph Ellison discussed the experiences of African Americans with the metaphor of invisibility. 
Ellison writes, I am invisible, understand, simply because people refuse to see me. Like the bodiless heads you sometimes see in curious circus sideshows, it is as though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves, or figments of my imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. Ellison's words. Invisible, like the woman at the well. And Jesus sees her. Our text records a conversation in different terms. The text records a conversation about waters and wells and husbands. But I think we could abbreviate the conversation in this way. I see you. In this exchange, Jesus is saying, I see you. I see who you are. I see your pain. I see your experiences. I see the story behind the story. I see that you need love. I see that you don't want to be alone in the world. I see you. You are not alone. You are not unlovable. You are not an untouchable. You are not to be avoided or ignored. You are not invisible. I see you. And isn't that the gospel? That Jesus sees us. That God sees us. That we are not unlovable, alone, or invisible to God. That we matter to God. That there is nothing we can do for God to stop loving us or calling us or seeing us. And that even when no one else does, God does. That we are never invisible to God, and God will go to all kinds of lengths to get us to understand this. From a crucifixion to, as Alice Walker testifies, purple flowers in a field. I see you, God says. You are not invisible to me. And so this woman responds the only way that she can. You are a prophet. This is far too early for a debate about the divinity of Jesus. She's not trying to start a theological conversation about whether we should view Jesus as a messenger, a prophet, a wise teacher, son of God, or God, God's self incarnate. Rather, she is acknowledging an encounter with the holy. You are a prophet. I am meeting God here. I have to remember you. You are a prophet. People must know about you. You are a prophet. I have been seen and heard. You are a prophet. You see the things I have not voiced. You see the structures in which I live. You see that I am here. You are a prophet. Prophecy is often interpreted as being a seer, as being one who can see into the future, one who can predict the future. Well, yes, being a prophet is about sight, but not foresight. To be a prophet is to see what others do not see. It's to look at the world and see who is lacking, to see who doesn't have enough, to see who doesn't have enough food, enough justice, enough love. It's to see who is hurting, who doesn't have power, who is afraid, who is discounted. It's to see the people who feel invisible. It's to see the story behind the story. 
is to see with your heart as much as you see with your eyes. And this is our calling today, to be prophets, to see, to look harder and deeper and with more intent, to see who is hurting, to see the story behind the story, to see who feels invisible, to see the injustices and the powerlessness and the lack and to say something about it. Sometimes it's saying, I see you. Sometimes that's listening and asking. Sometimes that's a rally or community service or supporting the organizations who are doing that work. Sometimes it's teaching and writing. But that is our calling, to be prophets, to see. And if, for whatever reason, you are more like the invisible than the prophet, if you feel unseen, alone, unheard, or ignored, then this is God's message for you. I care. I see you. God cares. God sees you. You are not invisible. Amen. <laughs>